Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Uh, you know, the 1920s are, are a century distant from us in time. But boy, they seem light years away in terms of culture and politics. And if there was one man who could, who could time travel back from then to now to teach us what it means to be American, I believe that would be our 30th president, Calvin Coolidge. He was Ronald Reagan's favorite president for a very good reason. He embodied the best of America's founding principles and the character of the American people. We could all learn essential wisdom from his beliefs and deeds. So today, I have the enormous pleasure of talking with Amity Schles, co-editor of a new edition of the Autobiography of Calvin Coolidge and author of the New York Times bestsellers, Coolidge, Forgotten Man, The Greedy Hand, and The Great Society. Uh, she also chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. And I'm a proud owner of all her books and think, he's, think she's one of our, our finest thinkers and writers. Uh, on the topic of freedom and free markets and, uh, and, and principles. Amity, delighted to have you here. Honored to be here. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's what, what is it that, 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 that fascinates you about Calvin Coolidge? I've got about 15 pages of notes here that, that fascinate me. What, what is it that brought you to him that uh, makes him so relevant to us right now? Well, um, writing books is a business just like buying and selling stocks. So you look for that product that's the most mispriced. Uh, and in the presidential marketplace, the most mispriced president is Calvin Coolidge. That is the market rates him real low and he's actually a value that's real high. So if you're an uh, entrepreneur of ideas, you look for the dramatic error in the market and you try to correct it. That's what happened with Coolidge. He's a very low-ranked president. You know, he's practically treated as a seat warmer between Roosevelt's, right, in the, in the books. But actually, Coolidge is a fabulous president. And you mentioned President Reagan appreciated that, but most people don't. The GOP doesn't really. So what is it that made him fabulous? And my job is to expose the value in a man who's underrated. And related to that, why is he underrated? Because he under-promised and over-delivered. And these days we tend to over-promise as if we're selling, I don't know what, yeah. um, you know, a cell phone or a used car and under-deliver. That's what we tend to do in our culture. And we, it's a, there's a terrible cost to our kids and cynicism. They're used to being sold something that's less good than the advertisement for it. That includes, by the way, college education and its price. Coolidge was the opposite. He under promise. He said, well, I'll help you a little bit. And then he over delivered, helped people more than they expected, especially with a strong economy. So I really like that as an intellectual investment and as a part of our history. So the, so the essentials, he's born in 1872, Vermont in a town called Plymouth Notch, Vermont, which I guess if you travel back there now, looks about like it did then. And in, it's in, been Plymouth Notch has been historically preserved, and we welcome you for a visit there. 
Well, I plan to get up there anyway. The book here is the autobiography of uh, Calvin Coolidge, and it's been annotated. And the the stunning first couple of chapters is the kind of life he led and how he ended up with the principles he had, which made him sort of one of our most principle-based bedrock presidents in history. I mean, what, what, it, what I think, you know, I've, I'm a fan of what we call, it's sort of out of favor right now, bourgeois virtue, which is savings and hard work and deferred gratification and, and uh, economical use of resources and things like that. If there's anybody who epitomized that, it seems like it's Calvin Coolidge. Well, he was like a lot of Americans, generally a farm culture, where you might have some wealth, some value you've built up, but it's not always liquid, right? Farmers may have something they build up, but they're usually cash poor. They have land. It's hard to translate that into easy money. And they tend to also, just by nature, not to advertise how wealthy they are, if they're at all wealthy. The, the Coolidge's had a particularly tough road to hoe because the, uh, uh, where they were was in mountainous Vermont. And you know what? It, later, the agriculture department went back and surveyed Coolidge's town and found that scarcely an acre of it was actually technically arable. It's say in Vermont, they farm rocks, right? It, uh, the, the humorist Will Rogers said that the farms uh, in Vermont don't lay, they hang like hammocks up in the sky. So you're moving rocks. What are you doing? Well, um, you know, listeners will know, viewers will know, well, they went to dairy a lot of the time because grazing is easier on rocky, non-arable soil. Um, but that was what the Coolidge's had. And a lot of their neighbors left and went west where, where the wealth, you know, the land just unrolls like a yellow carpet in front of you after you set it up, right? Acres and acres of wheat before your eyes, a thousand acres, that wasn't Vermont. They stuck it out. So it takes a certain kind of temperament to do that. And one reason is they were so engaged civically. There was a Carlos Coolidge, um, a, uh, apparently a very distant relation, who was governor in Vermont rather early. Coolidge's grandfather and father served in the state legislature. So this is kind of a Coolidge tradition. Uh, you serve as part of your government. Well, uh, Coolidge's father held just about every office in the town, including sheriff. So he'd pick people up in a cart to take them to confine them somewhere. He had to figure out how to pay the school teacher and move the snow in a period without electricity. Well, he was and in one that of the, part of the world, it gets dark yeah, pretty well, early he, and it's pretty cold in the winter. He, so this makes for tough people. Well, yeah, they're tough, but he was born to politics. His father, I think you mentioned his father and his grandfather combined for 75 years were the chief chief uh, sheriff or what, what position did they hold in the- in No, the they county? were a sheriff. They were, um, they were on the town committees, you know. And um, then he, he just, you know, and he's, he's an unusual example of somebody who was a lifelong politician yet held every free market virtue you know, known to man. It, it's incredible. How well, he... I think he understood too. Uh, there's an interesting story in the autobiography about a tax increase. They needed the money, <laughs> the town to what? There was a snow tax in the town, for example, but his father was hesitant about voting for it, even though his father could pay for it. His father was the kind of squire of their town because his father knew so many people who probably couldn't pay that tax. And his father had the store, so he sold on credit 
and Coolidge remarks in this autobiography that most people did pay their bills eventually. Well, the thing the, the, that is, there was an essential trust in the town. They all knew each other fairly well. It was bipartisan, even though predominantly Republican in that instance. And Coolidge it had the worked in the kind of politics where the first impression mattered less than the fifth. And that's lost today well, in our television era, right? Oh, yeah. And then the 24-7 Twitter news cycle, cable, fest, uh, nobody. Absolutely. Well, the thing that's striking, and I want to see whether this is your impression, he talks about his character and his, his family and his town as if everybody was that way. And you mentioned his father had a store and he, he ran he ran the business on trust and giving credit. And he'd have people come back years later saying, I owed you $4.53 and... Uh, here it is. And so there was that level of trust. And my, my take, though, was that, well, that while that was pe peculiar to Vermont, it wasn't really, it was really all of America back in 1875, 1880. Is that, is that, uh, it was, is that, well, is that it what you came to, to believe? Do... Or what am I right? right what, what do you think? Uh, it, uh, well, there were plenty of rogues in that period. You think of all the rogues who left Vermont when debt became too heavy. Um, rogues? One of them Rogues. Rogues. Yeah. I mean, people <laughs> ran off on their debt. You know, you think of, um, I don't know, um, John Deere, for example, left Vermont and he did all right in the Midwest. Yeah. A lot of people left Vermont when they had debt. Um, you know, it was a tough period. Debt was hard. My, my biography of Coolidge opens with the story of a Coolidge family member who was in jail because of debt. They didn't have debtor's prison, but he couldn't honor a contract because of debt. And he didn't, went in, in jail. Didn't, in he like, didn't, he owe, didn't he owe like $24 and, and 22 cents or something? Was, I, I, I think so. And what was even the more bitter was it was a family fight. Well, so so it was Oliver Coolidge and any info on Oliver Coolidge of Plymouth and Wisconsin, I'm taking from anyone who lives in Wisconsin who knows something, because you get the impression hearing about Oliver Coolidge's uh, uncle, great uncle, um, that he's going to die in jail. He's old. He had rheumatoid arthritis. He was in jail. But instead, he did a very American thing. He started over and went to Wisconsin. <laughs> where he had a whole second life and some of his descendants are still there. But, but generally speaking, what, it wasn't that the people were better than the people are now. It's that they were in a community where people knew each other. And if you let people down, they'd come back and get you. It wasn't this mirror celebrity culture of Twitter where you're encountering people you don't know and it doesn't matter what your second impression is. These people went to church together. They conducted the church service together. They did a business together and they knew each other rather well. It, 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 so it's, hard, it, it's hard for me not to jump in because I keep wanting, we need to, you know, part of the reason this is interesting is we can draw so many lessons to today, for today. And, you know, one of the lessons is debt is the biggest threat there is really too much debt uh, ruins lives, and he, you know, that he was he was deathly afraid of debt, and we'll talk about what he did as president. The other thing is just the borrower and the lenders knowing each other. I mean, one of the reasons we had the big blow up in two thousand eight was the securitization market, where the people lending the money and the borrowers had no idea who they were, and it was all done through complicated right. derivatives and bonds. And so we, we, we lost the, the and, and I was a commercial banker for a while. And one of the key things is know who you're, you're lending to and what their character is. 
That's right. And one of the um, important things about the United States, frankly, is our trust of one another. Trust of one another. We, we know each other and we kind of trust when we buy something. A good example would be eBay. Last night, I bought a copy of Calvin Coolidge's autobiography, an older edition on eBay. Well, eBay, eBay sort of guarantees this, this transaction and they, they probably fire vendors who, who rook buyers, but it's essentially a trust event. I send $30 to this vendor I don't even know, and he sends me the book. And I'm pretty sure it's gonna happen. So I paid him. That's very American and it's precious and that remains. Um, but of course, it's better if you know one another. And what many uh, younger transactors in the market don't understand is that if when you work someone else, you don't just hurt that someone else, you hurt the trust culture of the whole market. And no trust, a, a culture of no trust is very expensive because you have to insure a lot, right? And, and uh, it, so we have something precious in the United States, which is we kind of trust one another as individuals. And Coolidge came from that. It's really the America that Alexei de Tocqueville was describing that Coolidge was writing about. Little village, no electricity, train did not choose to go there. Debt mattered a lot, not an inflated period really. Um, that was Plymouth. But I wanna add, um, Plymouth was not um, naive. He paints this sort of grandma Moses picture of his village, right? Little village, snow. Um, but it was very tough there. Um, and he was also a Republican. And the, the father of the Republican Party was Lincoln, who likewise, born in a cabin, read law, didn't go to law school, Coolidge read law, that is, he apprenticed to learn the law rather than yeah. go to law school. Coolidge was also pointing out to his readership that he was part of the Lincoln tradition. Hmm. Poor guy good mother, good grandmother, tried hard. Um, so so we don't want to be, I don't think there's a bit false in the autobiography, but it's not a fairy tale place. It's a real place. And even if you live somewhere quite remote and without the internet or electricity, it doesn't mean you're not sophisticated. The Coolidge's were sophisticated people. His well, grandfather it, it, imported... It, it, it it was fairy tale animals from from far away in order to improve productivity and breeding. Well, it seemed fairy tale in this sense. I mean, he had an incredible hardship, which you described, but he didn't let it get him down. He didn't let it defeat him. He saw that as part of life, and I think the character that he he uh, he demonstrated as he came through that was, to me. Uh, I don't know if fairy tale is the right word, but it was a, certainly a morality tale. And I thought that but it's, it's that like a sense. It, it also has to do with the sense of service. I, I, I couldn't understand why Coolidge and Coolidge used to write his father these letters, which we have. And he'd be 25 years old and he'd write his father, I need a coat. My wife needs a coat. I need $400 for a suit or a few suits in those days, right? I need. I mean, and I thought, this is awful direct. I'm not sure. But what it was, was this, particularly when Coolidge was in service, that is going to school or working for government, he was representing the family in service. 
so it would be like Church of Latter-day Saints, a young person off in Asia doing their time for the church. Dear dad, I need a coat because you're not just doing something where you are, you're doing something on behalf of your family. And that's a bit the way the Coolidge were. They were pilgrims. They were missionaries in the new world. They weren't actually technically missionaries, but they had that attitude. I'm here in Vermont. The Coolidge's did not come from Vermont. They came from England via Boston. And I'm out here in the West. If you can imagine, Vermont was the West bill. <laughs> it was the wild West, you know, at the beginning of America, right? It was the wilds where there are Indians uh, and, and so on. I'm out here and I am representing my people. And only then do you sort of have an understanding of why, why someone like Coolidge would write home, I need this, I'm that, I'm, I'm a servant, um, I'm a pioneer, I'm a missionary, I'm representing our people in our advancement. And then, then it begins to make more sense. His father had money and a farm and Coolidge was being a politician, which didn't pay very well. I need a coat, but his father was proud of him being a politician because he was like uh, like someone in the military. I'm just a young lieutenant. My father's a general. Dad, I need a coat like that. Well, he uh, didn't. His father say something uh, when he was he he was vice president and Warren Harding died. What 1923, 22, and somebody asked his president, his father. So did he think Warren or Calvin would do well as president? And he said, Well, he did okay as governor. And I think he'll do okay as president. And he just sort of laconically, uh, you know, gave him this uh, the, the send off. But it wasn't clear that when he said that, had that he'd really been supporting Calvin all this time, or had he been? Well, it's not a, a kind of family where they slop over and tell each other how great they are every morning. <laughs> but it was a rock family they were there for one another and you can see that john was there what did john do the father he's sometimes called colonel john colonel john uh, yeah he um mrs coolidge died the bride of, of colonel john the mother of calvin he sent calvin to boarding school that must have been hard he didn't have a new wife uh he sent his son to boarding school it wasn't very far away it was 10 or 12 miles away, but in those days to get that far, you had to go in a wagon or walk. So he let his son go. Why did he do that? Because he wanted his son to have an education. And I believe Colonel John also went to the same school himself, which was a Northern Baptist school in Ludlow where the ski resort Okimo is now. And then he sent his son to Amherst, which cost money, hundreds of dollars when you add it up, they didn't have that much money, but he did it, even though at Amherst, his son probably wasn't gonna learn what you needed to do in Plymouth, so, uh, which is get the sugar out, you know, sugar. Well, they had, a, they had a sugar, they had a sugaring season, which I think they, they for what they called amber syrup. And Calvin had the reputation of being able to get more syrup than anyone else. That's right. I mean, he knew his father wanted him to work hard and he did, but he wasn't yeah. God's gift of farming. He was a slight kid um, and he was a bookish kid and he was probably a flaky kid thinking all the time. 
And uh, his sister was more practical. Uh, and at that, in that time, you could become a school teacher at age 14. And his sister was like, get me a job. I want one, you know, to, to the dad. And I'll go live somewhere and be a school teacher. And she was what we would consider a sophomore in high school or something like that. Very young. So they grew up fast. People died all the time, too. So they have more perspective than we do. Uh, Americans today don't believe that death happens. It's a problem. So, um, so all this is going on, um, but, so, but they were not unsophisticated. So you're setting yeah, up, uh, a, you, you set up a foundation, a university to, to teach us about the principles that Calvin Coolidge um, articulated and believed in. What is, what is that? What do you, we've got a university where kids what, can what, take classes? Well, the, the principles themselves were um, tight budgeting. Coolidge's father had a cheese collective, a kind of co-op that made cheese. What's, what's a cheesemaker in a place like Vermont? It's someone who's desperate. He didn't have refrigeration. What keeps when you don't have refrigeration in terms of dairy? Cheese, right? So his father made cheese. And Coolidge compared uh, budgeting and government restraint to cheese pairing, like with one of those knives. But, so Coolidge was a saver. We want people to know that. He actually cut the federal budget which is quite unusual for a president. He didn't reduce the increase the way we say today. He actually cut the federal budget. Um, he believed in low taxation. That's important. He believed in property rights, which people don't understand now. These would be the current equity conversation. Uh, he believed that property rights and personal rights were the same thing. And we have uh, our, our children. So, so we try to convey these principles and the virtue of Coolidge is America to younger Americans. And how do we do that? Um, we have a debate program where kids, kids debate Coolidge principles, pro and con. We always try to be sure we have both sides. Um, and we have a scholarship that is a prestigious scholarship named after the president, the Coolidge, which is a full ride to any college. So that would be about $300,000 a child. It is worth it. Um, because uh, children like that idea. They don't like strings attached. Parents don't like financial aid drama. So we have 4,700 kids applying this year for the for three or four scholarships. The so this is, this is a scholarship to any college of your choosing? Any college you get into. So there are a lot of colleges that are not going to be taught the same thing that Calvin Coolidge would have taught. Well, I have faith in young people that they can make up their own minds. Okay. This is a question that's often asked. If Coolidge was conservative, why aren't all the scholarships going to conservative colleges? Well, we have faith in young people uh, that they can make up their own minds, that they're actually exposed to all the arguments. We don't believe that they're such weaklings that they can be indoctrinated uh, super fast. So our whole goal is let the young people make up their own minds. All we do is offer Coolidge, offer the traditional explanation um, for some philosophies, which he had, which was the explanation that was commonly expect, accepted in the history of the United States for a very long period. All our aim is, is to expose people to Coolidge, not to indoctrinate them. And then when they go off to college, they'll have a little bit of perspective because they'll know there's some other views. That's great. Where's your uh, are you based so, in New so York? I, I have a lot of respect for young people. Are you based in New York or DC or where, where are you? The, the Coolidge Foundation is based in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. 
Um, it's pretty much closed right now because it's just about mud season. Um, Coolidge would have been beginning uh, sugaring maybe soon. It's still winter in Vermont. Uh, so, uh, but in the summer it's glorious and we usually have fireworks on the 4th of July, which happens to be Calvin Coolidge's birthday too. He's born with the country. Uh, as I said, he's a wonderful president. Uh, and uh, we also operate in Washington out of Coolidge House on Prospect Street, where we bring our scholars and adults for events. We've been hosting a lot of virtual events from Coolidge House. And I'm sorry about that, um, but hopefully we'll have some live ones again soon. Yeah, yeah. You, you said it's mud, it's mud season in, uh, in, in, in Plymouth Notch right now? Soon enough, right? <laughs> if not, I mean, I don't have a video camera, but that's what happens in New England in the spring. It's not, it's not great. Uh, your dog's paws get wet, your car's tires slide, and your shoes get wet. Uh, and you need to leave them in the mud room, right? You said something, I, I, we're jumping around, but I, I guess it's, it's sort of fun to jump around. You said something that was striking. Coolidge didn't just sort of cut, he cut federal spending in absolute dollars during his five years in office and until through, I guess, 1928. So it went from X billion down to 75% of whatever that number was at the beginning. Has anybody, no, well, the, any the budget went down, excuse me, the budget went down slightly. Slightly, it's okay. hard to constrain the federal budget when the population is growing. But he, but he uh, raised. It, he actually cut the budget. Up, sorry, he actually cut the budget in real and nominal terms. But particularly nominal is what matters because that's so astounding. So, so um, Andrew, Andrew, notwithstanding Mello a growth in the market that government had to serve, which is the American people, we had a population growth in that period. He also cut the debt. The debt was cut dramatically. It was cut by one third. It would have been very difficult to cut the budget by one third when you have the population growing. Well, it was a boom time, but he also reduced what the federal tax rate from 75% in the top earners down to 25%. And he and Harding together did that. Yeah. And you want to give Harding some credit. I hope you have the Harding revisionist on your show soon because he's wonderful. Who's the Harding revisionist? Who uh, there that? were several of them. But, but in Coolidge's case, he was the one who took the top rate, and we have a picture of that at Coolidge House, down to 25, which is lower than Ronald Reagan's 28%. And uh, it, Coolidge is um, just uh, driven on that. He said, I'm going to bend my energies to a tax cut. One other thing the pair did, this is Harding um, did it, but Coolidge kept it is they established the capital gains rate because there was a concern in that period. Remember the income tax was new. Federal taxation essentially was new in the area of income or, or these kind of transactions. People thought, well, maybe capital gains should be taxed just as the income taxes, right? And the income tax is 50%. That's a terribly high capital gains tax. So what Mellon, the Treasury Secretary, did under Harding, Coolidge's predecessor, but with Coolidge's support, was together with Congress, they, they fixed the capital gains tax rate, which is the rate when you buy and sell stocks, for example, at 12.5%. And Wall Street was very grateful. America was very grateful. They didn't welcome a new tax. But if the tax was fixed at a low rate, well, then they could operate. Well, what people don't understand about the capital gains tax is it really makes capital sticky. You almost, your ideal capital gains tax would be zero. 
The ideal capital people, gains tax is zero. People get their capital tied up in this business or that real estate or that venture deal, and they've got a gain. Well, they think, and normally if you had no tax, they would maybe exit, take the cash, and then invest it in something else that was promising. So if you believe in capital formation and the way that money ought to go to the next big thing, capital gains tax is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. You can argue it's double taxation. And um, it's, it's even, that it's that too, because it, we've already paid taxes on your on your capital when you've accumulated. So yes, it, it is double taxation. I will make that argument. Right. And, and um, there's an in, anyway, there are some more interesting articles come about coming out about that that you and I could talk about um, in another show. But Coolidge understood basically the principles of Adam Smith, which were what does it take for prosperity to to obtain absence of war, tolerable um, administration of justice, and easy taxes. Easy means not too heavy. It doesn't mean no taxes. And Coolidge understood if you could get relatively friendly tax regime, no war, and pretty good administration of justice, America would boom. In high school right now, they kind of teach the 20s like a joke, like a bubble in Jay Gatsby's champagne glass. Mm -hmm. The 20s growth was absolutely real and it improved the lives of most Americans. All high school teachers should have a look at this because I think they'll find evidence that they find compelling. What am I talking about? It, you know, we talk a lot about poverty today and coming out of poverty. Young people are concerned about it. Um, in the 20s, people are formerly poor, got an automobile, they got electricity, the electricity the Coolidge's hadn't had. They got Saturday off because of productivity gains, because just as you said, capital was invested in the right place, which is where their productivity gains and not just for tax purpose. And most important, think about today's poverty debate. What is the line that we draw between grinding awful poverty and working class. That, that line is actually indoor plumbing. In the 1920s, America began the majority of indoor, indoor plumbing. I rest my case. The 20s were an awesome decade. We got toilets and cars and washing machines as well, well as Saturday and, off. And we got a so, so this is the growth that comes from economics, not champagne. It's not all crash yeah. city. Well, and, we also, uh, we also got a revolution in, in chemicals. We got radio. We got the beginning of TV. Uh, you know, the house, household appliances allowed women a, a totally different life than they had before the 20s. And, and, and real economic growth was about 4% a year for seven or eight years uh, after World War I. And, you know, the, the fascinating lesson now in how to deal with uh, depression recession is after world war one we had that tremendous depression everything went like this and what did harding do about it nothing and cool no no they actually raised the interest rate and cut the budget that's what he did well even better anyway so he they, raised they, it well the they, fed with which had the treasury in it at the time raised the interest rate what do you do when you have a downturn you double the interest rate that's so counterintuitive <laughs> and you cut the budget you unstimulate right you do the opposite and yet that is the forgotten depression and and i know you must know jim grant and your viewers sure. must know him yeah. he wrote a brilliant book about that i hope he's on the show i do too he's he, he's amazing we uh 
And, and I think also by 1927, only 2% uh, of Americans were paying federal income tax. They really cut it to something where it was- Well, that uh, gets to another point. Sometimes when you cut the rate, the rich people pay a greater share. If you're concerned about distribution, the distribution tables of the 20s yeah. are a beautiful thing because when they cut the rates, the rich people paid more of the taxes, which is kind of counterintuitive. But when you think about it, it isn't because the rich people had successful businesses. There was more business oh activity. The, the, the much demonized supply side. The much it, demonized it supply side, yeah. Um, it works. It, it is, and it worked. And I recommend to anyone um, Andrew Mellon's book about this, which is called Taxation, Coal, and the People's Business, Treasury Secretary's book. It's about $150 or more on eBay because everyone loves the Mellon book. I, um, I, maybe you'll write a new introduction to it and publish it again, sir. Well, I would love that. I, they, they say, I think you wrote that Mellon, quoted that Mellon was uh, treasury secretary and that three presidents worked for Mellon, Harding, Coolidge and Hoover because he was such a- Yeah, an three presidents figure. served under Mellon. Served under Mellon, even better. <laughs> So let's talk about that contrast between what was really happening with the economy in the 20s and the perception, but the perception is guided by what happened to the stock market. And as I understand it, uh, Coolidge was very upset about the stock market going from 100 to 200 to 300, almost to 400. And by 27, 28, he was, he was very concerned that this, this was gonna be a crash. And then- Well, if you study the timing of the market rise, a good share of it, um, I don't have the chart in front of me, but I believe it, a good share of it was was post-Coolidge. 270, something like that, from when he decided not to run. I don't, anyway, I don't have the chart, but he was concerned when it went from 100 to 200 when he was president because he, he thought that was too high. But remember, at that time, Washington didn't regulate the stock market. There was no SEC. And... The even without any SEC, that's important too. The market had always come back. Um, Coolidge had seen plenty of big crashes in his lifetime, including that forgotten depression, which Jim Grant describes without any old tenure depression. So, what made this different? And that's where the debate lies. And some people say, well, it's because Coolidge was such a bubble, the bubble was so big that we had to take 10 years to recover. There's not much evidence for that argument besides the emotional. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, a, a number of terrible factors in the beginning, some international, but op, if you want to like take back, uh, you know, step back uh, and fly up and be a bird at 30,000 feet, the way Benjamin Anderson, the chief economist of Chase in the period was, the distinction between the 30s and preceding crashes was the government played God. It tried to manage the crash minute to minute. And so when you, the government played God, it made a lot of errors. So there so was the cascade you, you, of errors in the 1930s. They just went on and on. And um, recoveries are uh, like people. They choose, they have choices and they choose to come back or they choose to stay away. The recovery in the 30 every year took a look at the US regulatory regime, the tax regime, the government, the general environment and said, I will stay out one more year. So you wrote the so, wonderful, wonderful book on the depression, The Forgotten Man, and you're probably the best person. F I've never felt like anybody's quite explained why the depression was so deep. And you, you say that your book on 
cool, your, you call it a prequel, where you've covered both 30s and the 20s. And so you could see what was leading up to 29. We had the market drop. What did, what, what did the government do wrong between 1930? Well, they, every year a different thing, but there are two areas that where the government erred that are under discussed. Um, what's over discussed is the monetary. Okay. And that's because some conservatives, Milton Friedman is a free marketeer, lay emphasis on the monetary. Okay, Milton could be right for the first part of the 30s. Uh, Milton himself never said the whole Great Depression was caused by monetary. It's hard to find him saying that, by the way. So what were the under-discussed factors that really mattered? One of them was the labor price. Usually, up till then, the government didn't get involved in wages too much, the federal government. It just didn't. So beginning with Hoover, actually, we began to say on a sort of Keynesian theory that Keynes was just developing, but anyway, um, if you pay people more and be sure they have more money, they'll start shopping and that will revive the economy. It, it, it also came from Henry Ford, pay people a lot and they'll buy back the car they made. Anyway, cool, Hoover, unlike Coolidge, began to exhort employers to sustain high wages and pass some legislation that, that had an up, place an upward pressure on wages, such as the so-called Davis-Bacon Act which the employers found perverse because when you're in trouble and profits are down, you certainly don't want to pay more wages, right? It's too hard for you. So what do you do? You rehire fewer people. It's well, man, just as simple as that. If you don't have enough money, you don't rehire people you laid off so quickly. We, we, we see that with today's minimum wage argument. It's, uh, you know, that you say you raise a minimum wage to what they call Please. a living and wage. And that was very important. What, what happens is you keep I apologize. people out of the labor market because they're not worth $15 an hour or whatever the number Exactly. Is. It's the same the, as the min wage. And the big companies like a Walmart that can pay $15 or Amazon or whatever, uh, then start lobbying for a federal minimum wage because they can drive their smaller competitors out of business because they can't afford that wage. And so it, 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 it's terrible in terms of helping people uh, get their start in the workforce. It's also terrible in terms of innovative small companies that can't pay those rates. Uh, so it's bad for innovation, it's bad for competition, um, it's bad for poor people's lives. Let me see, can we come up with anything good um, behind uh, regulating wages? I, I, I don't think it's good. And there was an economist, there is an economist named Mark Koyama who pointed out yeah. something to me I hadn't thought about, but in the thirties there was deflation. So the labor leader goes in and he gets a 20% raise and he's very proud of that. But it's actually more than a 20% raise by the time it comes for the employer to pay it because of deflation. That is, I just have less money, says the employer. And therefore unions, and it was a union law that gave us um, a major union law that sort of cemented all this, the Wagner Act of 1935. The unions got even more than they thought they were getting under Roosevelt because of the deflation function. It's just an example of unintended consequences because even unions um, who some people dislike don't wish all workers would be unemployed, but that was often what they caused, greater unemployment for workers because of the high wage. So that's so, factor one. So in your view, okay, factor one was, in, was getting into the wage business and setting what, minute, what wages should be and all the other work rules that go along with that. What's factor two? Factor two is uncertainty. So you think of government as an elephant in the room yeah. and or 
a donkey in the room. And if the, the donkey or elephant is relatively predictable, you keep going. I mean, business, as I was saying before with that Adam Smith quote, the environment doesn't have to be perfect for business to thrive. It just has to be not too bad, mm-hmm. right? It's you look out, you say, it might rain, but I have my galoshes, but it's going to spit. It's not going to pour. I'll go out. Maybe I'll go out and other people won't when the environment is not too bad. But what makes the environment worse? A real thunderstorm where you say, I'm not going out. A dog would not go out. A lot of uncertainty from government. And and Roosevelt didn't merely um, permit uncertainty, President Franklin Roosevelt. He relished uncertainty. He made his official policy bold, persistent experimentation. It was all about him and it was all about a broad license for the president. Complete. Contrast that with Harding's policy, which was normalcy. I used to think normalcy sounded stupid. They want us all to be normal cons. That's not what Harding and Coolidge meant by normalcy, the 1920 platform item. What they meant by normalcy was a relatively normal environment so businesses can have fun. Well, we had that situation with Obama where they kept kept coming up with new regulations and you know, somebody that invests capital, which I've been in the business of doing, you can work with the regulatory landscape if you know the rules are going to be the rules are going to be the rules for your investable horizon. But when you think that might change in a year or two or three, what do you do? You don't do anything. And so there's all sorts of things that don't get started. Uh, When I was a baby banker at Continental Bank in Chicago, I was in the international lending department for about, I don't know, three days. I didn't really because they were doing government lending and we did this whole risk matrix on uh, what the risks were in lending to countries. And they were of course enormous, but the biggest thing was regulatory risk in these countries or legal risk or how quickly could things change. And country after country after country that were fashionable uh, to be lent to in that time had enormous regulatory risk. Country risk. Country risk, country risk. Well, we, what we I've is, forgotten. We, and, but, we all but then, acknowledge. But then, but then the United States then, this was in the 70s, uh, was considered to be free from country risk. And now the last 40 years, we've seen country risk. And this, what do we rank now? Number 22 in the Heritage uh, Index of Freedom. Um, you know, we know. seem to we seem to have strayed a bit from Coolidge, but we really haven't. <laughs> no, awful. no. So Coolidge was diminishing <laughs> country risk. That's a very brilliant way to put it, because guess what? At that time, we weren't the only country in the world. We weren't always and forever primo, right? Mm-hmm. There was the England, and England had struggled in World War One. We'd come out on top, but that could be temporary that was the attitude. And so we were in a kind of competition with England to be less risky. Right. And England was more risky because England followed the social democratic path, whatever party was in power, they created the Dole, which was a very relatively expensive uh, unemployment program that ended up uh, becoming unpopular because everyone could see it was deterring people from going back to work. That's how the word Dole, D-O-L-E became a pejorative. And the U.S. went on a more common sense course, relatively conservative, and the U.S. did better than the U.K. Well, yeah, and the- that solidified our primacy uh, that we take for granted today and reduced our country so, risk. So let me a, a guide to a guy a guide to Coolidge thinking then is he understood that 
if we made the United States less risky, less likely for government to intervene, we'd be more attractive for international capital flows. Yes. And he had that, that was a conscious uh, strategy of his. Yes, I mean, he also believed in the U city on a hill, the US as example. Yeah. That's important too. So, uh, so you don't always have to intervene everywhere. Sometimes your example is more important to people than your gun votes. And Reagan understood that too. Because for Cuba or Russia, the Amer America was important. Not the way we convinced Russia was not by convincing, um, you know, Putin's predecessors, Brezhnev. We convinced Russia by convincing the people over the shoulders of their leaders as they observed the empirical success of our system. So Coolidge said the best way to lead the world was for us to live by example. He was not a, a neocon, Calvin Coolidge, not an interventionist. So once again, I've, we've got a few minutes left here, not many. Once again, we're wandering into really interesting stuff and we got to keep talking, but we got to bring this, this this segment to, to a close. Uh, I, I'd love to get you back because I remember reading you at the Wall Street Journal. Gosh, I won't tell you how long ago it was. You, we were all you know, six years old then. You were brilliant in economics then. You're still brilliant in economics. I think we need to talk about the economics of Calvin Coolidge when we come back and what works and what doesn't. But in the meantime, you've got this, this foundation. You're giving scholarships. You've got a curriculum. Is it, is it online? Is it accessible Well, what mainly we try to do things in person. So if you sign up to apply for the Coolidge, which yeah. 4,700 kids have applied for this year, our full yeah. ride scholarship to college, you may become a senator, which is one of our finalists. We have 100 senators. And then we bring you to Washington. You can learn all these things. As I say, it's a lot of fun because you're with other senators. And then these are it's an academic scholarship. So you're meeting other kids who are as serious as you are, which is pretty rare you're getting away from your high school, you have fun in Washington and you learn um, all about Calvin. Uh, we don't try to convert you. We just want you to have fun and open your mind because uh, it's very often the case that Calvin is not taught in schools. No, that would be true. Uh, so you, you convene, where are the classes taught, Georgetown? They're taught in Georgetown and at Plymouth Notch. This year, we're going to take 10 um, senators, that is 10 of our finalists for an intensive program, all paid, and they'll be staying at a ski lodge, and then they'll be at Plymouth Notch, that is in beautiful Vermont, near Dartmouth, and then they'll be in Washington, right in Georgetown, so they can check out the college as well, meeting important people, senators, congressmen, and uh, people such as yourself, and uh, learning also about the importance of business. Well, if I may summarize what I believe, and it sounds like you might believe too, is that good public policy is a, is a result of a sound private virtue. And the individual private virtues we have as a society, civil society, and the things we believe, if we practice good ones, we bring those into our public policy realm, great things happen. And well, and also good private or public education. Coolidge said you can't have a republic without education. Uh, and we have to be sure our education covers all the areas. Okay, well, Amity, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. It sounds like we could have a lot of fun. Let's just get into the nitty gritty of the tax and the monetary next time. Oh, I can't wait. That We're going to go total wonk and it's going to be 
really interesting. <laughs> really fun. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks. I hope right, everyone we'll we'll gets talk the soon. Coolidge book okay. for the grandchildren. Wait, and let me, the let me, it's easy let me, to let me, read. Let me do this again here. We've got the autobiography of Calvin Coolidge. And if you want the unabridged version, we have the, uh, the biography of Coolidge. And it's tremendous. The, the top hat, actually, the top hat's one of the best parts here. What an era. <laughs> what a choice. And what you also look, this guy is having fun. So yeah. contrary to rumor, he wasn't grim. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Yeah, bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.